daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, Chinese President Xi Jinping has had a phone conversation with his French counterpart Emmanuel Macron. What issues have been discussed? China and Saudi Arabia have signed a currency swap agreement. How will it strengthen financial cooperation and promote trade between the two countries? Germany, France and Italy have reached agreement on future of AI regulation. How will that impact negotiations at the European level? Chinese President Xi Jinping has had a phone conversation with French President Emmanuel Macron, calling on both sides to promote new progress in bilateral cooperation. President Xi hoped the two countries can work together and push China-France relations to a new level as the two countries mark 60 years of diplomatic ties next year. He also said China hopes France will play a constructive role in China-EU relations. President Macron said France is willing to deepen exchanges and cooperation in economy, trade, aviation and culture. The two leaders also discussed the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, stressing that the immediate priority is to de-escalate the situation and avoid a more serious humanitarian crisis. They agree that the two-state solution is the fundamental way out of the cycle of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Cui Hongjian, professor with the Academy of Regional and Global Governance at Beijing Foreign Studies University. Dr. Cui, thanks for joining us. Hi. So, first of all, how would you describe the current state of relations between China and France, and uh, what are the major takeaways from this phone conversation between the two leaders? So far, uh, as we know, uh, on regard of the uh, relations between China and France, uh, I think uh, on the whole, it's, um, uh, I mean, a stable and uh, progressive relations, especially uh, in the frame of uh, relations between China and some Western countries. Also, in the always, uh, this uh, relations between China and France has a higher, I mean, uh, strategic uh, uh, significance, and uh, and also now, uh, not only the strategic cooperation, and uh, now they are trying to find out some more opportunity or potential to support the economic cooperation. Especially recent years, as we know, uh, despite of the any kind of anti-globalization uh, tendency, uh, the bilateral trade and also the mutual investment in China and France uh, are, get, are, are getting, uh, you know, increasing. Of course, at the same time, uh, also in a, uh, as both of the uh, member of uh, uh, P5 uh, in the United Nations, uh, always there are some more co- uh, coordination and dialogue between two countries on some uh, global and regional issues. Especially now, as we know, because of the uh, you know uncertainties or some tensions uh, in regions. So I think now it's a very good time for both China and France to push forward this kind of a cooperation. So we can find some more positive messages from the conversation uh, between President Xi and his counterpart in France. Yeah, and President Xi emphasized the desire for more French companies to invest in China, but um, in light of the current economic climate, as uh, for instance, what you mentioned, this um, anti-globalization tendency or um, some geopolitical considerations, what factors do you think are affecting French companies' decision to invest in China? 
Yes, you mentioned the you know the current economic climate and also geopolitical considerations. I think both of the two reasons become more and more consideration for some French companies or investors when they try to make a decision to go to China further or not. Especially, I think from now French and also European Union side, it looks like they are trying to. Uh, find out a more, you know, so-called strategic uh, policy towards China, including some uh, policy like uh, de-risking with China or some other. So certainly, it will give some negative impact on this uh, confidence, especially for some investors from France. But of course, I think now another, uh, uh, you know, uh, challenges ahead for China and France is uh, both two countries need to. Uh, you know, push forward reform, not only uh, in its uh, policies and also on some uh, structural uh, system or some other uh, issues, especially to provide some more variable environments for both two countries, especially for West investors and uh, companies, will be a very, very important issue for both two countries and also for both two leaders. Yeah, and notably, both leaders highlighted the importance of a fair business environment. Um, how do we understand the concerns on both sides? I think it's not a, a fresh issue for both two countries to touch uh, the, the issue of a fair business environment. As we know, uh, once they try to deal with the issue, I think they need to do something more. Firstly, they should find some more synergy between different regulations. As we know, uh, the stru- economic structure, I mean, in both two countries are different. And uh, so now they should uh, make some more efforts to push forward this uh, mutual understanding and also mutual trust. And secondly, both two countries need to insist the globalization, I mean, process and to help maybe a healthy and also sustainable cooperation in the direction of uh, further uh, globalization. Or third, of course, uh, a frequent exchange dialogue and uh, cooperation would would be a very, very important uh, condition for both two countries to understand what's the real issues, what's the real problems for the uh, investment and also the bilateral cooperation. Yes. Uh, well, as we know, France has pushed for an EU anti-subsidy probe into Chinese electric ve- electric vehicles, with the belief that the influx of Chinese EVs is a threat to EU's car industry. Uh, how do you assess such concerns, and how might this um, investigation impact China-France economic ties? Regardless of the uh, importance of the relations in between China and France, as we know, recent years. Especially in France, there are some opinion to say that okay, they need to have some more protected Europe, so they need to have some more maybe protectionism in the field of trade and investment. We can find the current case of the EV uh, subsidy uh, uh, survey by European Union. So of course, uh, I think the major reason is so far on the uh, cooperation between. China and Europe on EV, uh, there, there is a, just a little percentage from uh, France. But of course, at the same time, uh, we do, the China uh, did a lot of cooperation with 
Germany. So we can find out to the different attitudes from those two countries, I mean, France and Germany. So I think now the uh, big problem for this, um, uh, you know, divergences on eBay between China and France is, uh, no, we should not have any hesitant to push forward the cooperation. Let's imagine that once there are some more cooperation between China and France on the eBay sector, certainly there will be some more common interests for both sides. So I think at that time, it will uh, give, uh, you know, it will give no reason for France to have this uh, uh, concern on, so, on so-called the competition of e-way from China. Okay, and, and President Xi has also called for France uh, to play a constructive role in promoting positive developments in China-EU relations. So what specific challenges exist in the current state of China-EU relations and how might France contribute to, contribute to their improvement? Certainly, as we know, uh, recent years, uh, the China-EU relations are facing some uh, challenges. Uh, first of all, as we know, since uh, 19, uh, 2019, the European Union side, uh, you know, raised the uh, issue of a multifaceted uh, Chinese policy, uh, including cooperation uh, and also competition and also rivalry. So I think it gives uh, a lot of the uh, uncertainties. Uh, towards the China-EU relations. At the same time, I think lots of, including France and some other major member states in the European Union, they should play a more constructive role to help the, I mean, stability and also certainty for these relations. Also, you know, uh, the China-EU relations is as important as possible, especially in a more, uh, I mean, chaos and also some more uh, unstable world. So not only on the free trade or some other issue, especially on the strategic dialogue or coordination, I think uh, uh, France will uh, could do something more to help the stability and also even the more protects from this uh, cooperation between China and the EU. Yes, and, and uh, of course, the two leaders also exchanged views on the conflict in Gaza. So what diplomatic roles do you think China and, and France can play to prevent the further deterioration of the situation and, and perhaps contribute to the resolution of the crisis? I think that both China and uh, uh, France will suffer from you know, uh, the un- uh, stopped uh, I mean, uh, tensions, especially the conflicts. Uh, in Middle East and some other regions. Also, you know, both China and France still try to uh, find a focus on uh, development, not confrontation with each other. So, as we know, that uh, the Gaza and the Middle East region is in a surrounding area for France and the, the European countries. And also, uh, China is also trying to push forward uh, or help this uh, uh, peace process in Middle East. So I think now for both two countries, they could find out some more common interests on this issue to prevent further, I mean, deterioration and try to play a more constructive a diplomatic role to help, I mean, the destination of the uh, conflict and to find out uh, finally the political settlements. Yes, and, and the two leaders also discussed collaboration on climate change, including the upcoming COP28. How do you assess the potential impact of China and France working together on global climate change efforts? 
for both China and France and also both China and the European countries, uh, they are playing a leading role now uh, in the issue of uh, to deal with the climate change and also uh, to find out a more constructive or positive result for this upcoming COP28. So also, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a very important part for France to uh, insist this uh, uh, Paris agreement. So I think it's also in the interest of China to help it, uh, uh, you know, on the international negotiation and to find out a more joint effort from every country to help this, uh, uh, you know, deal with uh, dealing with the uh, climate change issue. And also at the same time, of course, also countries need to deal with some uh, the current issues like uh, EV subsidies, uh, uh, you know, investigation, and uh, to find out, I mean, comprehensive cooperation not only on the international negotiation level and also on the level of uh, industry cooperation uh, to help the green transformation. As we know, for both China and France, uh, they already, uh, you know, take a, a green economy as a new industry uh, direction. So I think it will give some more uh, common uh, monument, uh, movement and also some more dynamic for both countries to, have, to find out a more a point to get some more cooperation on this Thank you, Dr. Che Hongjian, professor with the Academy of Regional and Global Governance at Beijing Foreign Studies University. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. The People's Bank of China and the Saudi Central Bank have signed a bilateral currency swap agreement. The swap size is 50 billion yuan or 26 billion Saudi riyals. It will be valid for three years and can be extended by mutual agreement. China's central bank says the agreement will strengthen financial cooperation, expand the use of both currencies, and promote trade and investment facilitation. For more, we are now joined on the line by Liu Baochun, director of the Center for International Business Ethics at University of International Business and Economics. Dr. Liu, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, could you explain the significance of this currency swap agreement and uh, what it means for both countries? Well, the currency swap agreement was really provoked by uh, people's fear against the financial crisis, and that has, has been on the surge since uh, the financial contingent over uh, the world uh, since the uh, 2008. And uh, China is uh, playing an important role uh, in arranging uh, a number of uh, swapping agreements uh, with uh, more than 40 countries. So, so far, it has been uh, serving uh, significant consequence. One is that uh, it provides more confidence in those uh, financial players, and uh, it helps to uh, facilitate the short-term liquidity of a certain country and right now, the, uh, many countries are facing liquidity crunch. And so this can really help them to alleviate such sort of worry. And uh, I think more fundamentally is because of the increasing trade and investment uh, on bilateral basis that prompts uh, a, such a need to have these, uh, this sort of a, uh, agreement. And additionally, the, uh, because the U.S. dollar has been unstable and also the uh, dollar has also been increasingly used uh, as a weapon,
to uh, serve the U.S. purpose. So therefore, there's a great motivation for many countries to go for a more stable and uh, uh, a more predictable currency, which is the RMB, to uh, support uh, their uh, economic growth and also global settlement. Yeah, and it is suggested that the use of the yuan may bolster bilateral crude exchanges and, of course, uh, reduce Saudi Arabia's reliance on the U.S. dollar. Uh, so what implications does this shift have for the global energy market and how might it influence the, the considerations of other major oil-producing countries? Yes, the uh, oil has been a strategic asset in the world. Uh, uh, there has been different opinions over the future of uh, a crude oil and a gas, uh, whether the green transformation uh, can really replace that. So Saudi Arabia is uh, uh, pretty much prepared for uh, such sort of changes. They have the Vision 2030, uh, which uh, is uh, very much in line with the uh, Belt and Road Initiative China has been proposing. And uh, uh, we can see that uh, the uh, collaboration in trade has been on a steady increase last year, which achieved more than the uh, 100 billion U.S. dollars investment on the rise, and uh, China's growth and China's uh, uh, the high quality, the uh, promotion uh, does really help to give uh, more of inspiration to Saudi Arabia to further industrialize the country and uh, the uh, to diversify their industrial portfolio. And so this is really the, the, the basis that can really uh, support uh, such sort of uh, uh, initiative. And uh, it, it, it does really give uh, the traders, the investors more convenience in the settlement and more uh, stability uh, in the uh, currency and also foreign exchange uh, rates. Yeah, and as we know, Saudi Arabia has been working to diversify its economy from oil. So how might this um, currency swap lead to further collaboration in renewable energy or other areas that may help achieve uh, the country's economic diversification goals? I think that's a, a great question, and that really falls into the vision of 2030 for Saudi Arabia. And uh, uh, because the, the unique culture of Saudi Arabia and uh, they are very much focused on trust building. So over the years, China, in terms of the diplomacy and uh, also the geopolitical issues, uh, so China has been uh, working very much in favor of the direction of uh, Saudi Arabia. And uh, now with the oil and gas as the main trading items, the, both countries actually are, see are seeking to balance the trade and also to diversify the uh, exchange in uh, the trade pattern. And uh, uh, the fact that uh, uh, more of the chemical and petrochemical plants are being set up uh, through joint ventures and other co collaborative deals show that uh, we are really working for a fruitful result. And so far, both sides are very satisfied uh, with where we are moving. So this way, we can uh, really uh, give a uh, best showcase to many of the Gulf countries and uh, other oil-producing countries that by working with China and by uh, building trust, uh, we can really promote the benefit for both countries. And eventually, it provides more quality of jobs and more consumption power 
for mm. all the people involved. Yes, and, and how does this currency swap agreement align with China's broader effort to promote the internationalization of the yuan? And, and what are the potential benefits for China in having more transactions conducted in yuan? Well, uh, China is the on the top of the world trading partner to more than 100 countries. And we also the, uh, have trade surplus. And uh, the uh, more importantly, it is the, uh, the large foreign exchange reserve that gave not only the China confidence, but also gave more assurance to all the trading partners and investment partners. So uh, when China is really stepping up on the uh, drive of uh, internationalization for its own currency of RMB, uh, uh, it is really serving a strategic purpose so that we can reduce re, uh, the our dependence on the uh, transaction and settlement by U.S. dollar. And uh, uh, this also gives more of the convenience for the business community to uh, deal with their transactions uh, with uh, more of the uh, stable uh, predictability for uh, their future gains. So for consumers, uh, they can also, through this uh, sort of uh, swap agreement, they, uh, by the promotion of trade and investment, they can also benefit a great deal. Yeah, and as you mentioned earlier, uh, more countries are showing this this preference for using local currencies to settle foreign trade um, to reduce reliance on the U.S. dollar. So what do you think has been driving this trend and how do you anticipate this trend evolving? Because, I mean, there's a difference between de-dollarization and an actual end of dollars dominance globally, right? Exactly. Uh, you know, given the fact that uh, the SWIFT system uh, which deals with the U.S. dollar transaction is uh, uh, being more and more manipulated by the United States. The many countries are seeking the uh, financial sovereignty and currency sovereignty. Then, uh, so there is a uh, significant drive for them to reduce the uh, dependence on the U.S. dollar, and uh, also the U.S. dollar has been, you know, uh, swinging in terms of the value, in terms of the uh, the interest rates. So that really uh, gave a lot of uncertainties to uh, also the business calculation. So now uh, with the increased trade and investment, uh, independent of the U.S. dollar, independent of the United States, so very naturally the uh, people resort more to the uh, uh, alternative currency, which is RMB, uh, which is spreading uh, uh, very widely. And uh, the Chinese government has also been pushing forward for the further internationalization of RMB. And uh, uh, now we do see uh, substantial improvements has been made. But of course, we have to remind that uh, uh, there's, this is really a long drive. Uh, for RMB to uh, rival in terms of the quantity, in terms of liquidity with the United States, because the capital account of RMB has not really been fully liberalized yet. Yes, thank you, Liu Baochun, Director of the Center for International Business Ethics at University of International Business and Economics. More to come, Germany, France and Italy have reached agreement on the future of AI regulation. How will that impact negotiations at the European level? 
Air China resumes direct flights between Beijing and Washington. How will it promote people-to-people exchanges between China and the U.S.? You're listening to World Today. We'll be back in a, sh- in a minute. This is World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. France, Germany, and Italy have reached an agreement on regulating artificial intelligence. According to Reuters, the three governments are in favor of binding voluntary commitments for AI providers in the European Union. This development comes as the European Commission, the European Parliament, and the EU Council are engaged in negotiations to define the bloc's stance on AI regulation. The European Parliament presented its AI Act in June, with the aim to address safety concerns without hindering innovation. The Parliament proposed that the Code of Conduct should initially only be binding for major AI providers, which are primarily from the U.S. However, the three EU governments have warned against this apparent competitive advantage for smaller European providers, saying this could lead to less trust in the security of these smaller providers and result in fewer customers. For more, we are now joined on the line by Andy Mock, tech analyst and senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. Andy, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Zhao Yi. Um, so how significant is this agreement um, and, and how might it impact the broader negotiations on the European level? Well, Zhao Ying, so this is very, very important for several reasons. So first of all, there's tremendous attention paid to the development of artificial intelligence, especially generative AI uh, applications um, like ChatGPT. Um, But there's not enough attention paid to the regulation of this. And this is actually very, very important and just as important as the technological development. So I think that's the first point. The second point is there is a, uh, a competition globally for how to best regulate this. And the EU historically has been a very important player. Uh, look back to the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. Um, so this is important. Now, from a European context, which was your question, um, France, Germany, uh, and Italy are uh, three of the uh, largest economies and politically uh, heavyweights. So this, of course, will have an impact on the uh, future direction of EU regulation of AI. So uh, I think it is absolutely correct that we are paying attention to this because this is important not only for Europe, but globally as well. Yes, and, and these three countries argued uh, against giving a competitive advantage to smaller AI providers because they say uh, the rules of conduct and transparency should be binding for everyone, regardless of the size of the companies. What do you make of the rationale behind this argument? And, and do you think there's a risk uh, to perhaps stifle the growth and creativity of those smaller AI companies? Well, typically... Um regulation imposes a disproportionate, uh, a greater burden on smaller companies. Because to look at an extreme, you know, if you're a company with tens of thousands of employees, it might not be too hard to have 10 or 20 devoted to regulatory compliance. But if you have five employees, um, it can be very difficult and very costly to comply with regulations. 
So I think this is something that uh, has to be balanced. So on the one hand, I think in principle, a level playing field where the same regulations apply to every company, irrespective of size, uh, sounds fair in a certain way. But uh, it also can impose undue burdens on smaller companies. And this, what this means then is that it could affect uh, innovation in this space because there's a general belief uh, and there's evidence to support this belief that the best innovations come from startups and smaller companies. Yes, a complex issue indeed. And, and the joint paper underscores that the AI Act regulates the application of the AI, not the technology itself. How do we understand this? Well, again, I think, um, you know, at one level, it is very sensible because what regulators care about is the impact on people's lives, whether this is on consumers, on businesses, uh, other sectors of society. So if we say that we're going to focus on application, that is the most directly related to where both harm and good occur. So I think that does make sense. But we can also, on the other hand, say that uh, regulating technology properly can uh, address application issues. So it depends. But, you know, again, I think uh, that... uh, implies a certain amount of technological expertise that it might actually be a more sensible and more cost-effective option to regulate applications. But again, it all really depends on how it's applied and finally on the results. Okay. And, and as you said, there's this global competition to regulate the development of AI. So as the EU navigates AI regulations, how might that influence uh, this global discussions on, on AI governance? And what do you make of the prospect of international collaboration in AI regulation? Yeah, so another really great question, Taoying, that has, I think, unfortunately, not a simple answer. So um, I think there are really two major engines of AI innovation, and that's the U.S. and China. So I think the regulatory regimes there, of course, will matter a lot. And uh, the U.S. and China are also big markets. Now, Europe, of course, is a very big market, too. So in this way, I think that regulatory developments, um, even breakthroughs, if we can call them that, uh, will have a global impact and will affect uh, the global dialogue, the thinking on what are best practices uh, for regulating AI. Um, But on the other hand, um, I think, you know, again, uh, we also have to think about the production side, if we can look at it this way, that uh, a lot of the R&D, the commercialization of AI, uh, is happening in places like the U.S. and China. And here I think the EU might run a risk of perhaps being uh, potentially out of touch with the R&D, the commercialization side. And in an ideal world, uh, regulation can encompass both. And here I think China is actually very well positioned because, of course, it has a government that is able uh, to holistically address these issues.
Okay, but notably, uh, the United Kingdom um, said it will refrain from, um, you know, regulate the development of AI or, uh, you know, having a law to regulate AI in the short term. That's according to the UK's first minister for AI and intellectual property, uh, citing concerns that heavy-handed regulation could curb industry growth. So do you think it, it is perhaps a bit too early to discuss regulations when um, this, you know, AI industry is still still has a huge growth potential? No, that is such a great point, Zhao Ying, right? So again, AI in one way, uh, like any new technology, right, uh, it'll take time to figure out where the problems are and where the opportunities are. So in this way, you know, this makes me think of uh, this term light touch regulation in the UK, you know, which has a mixed reputation. But at the same time, uh, that it makes a lot of sense, right? Why don't you see or why don't we uh, see how things develop and regulate as needed? Because uh, over-aggressive regulation, of course, can stifle innovation. So I think this is uh, a sensible philosophy, but again, any regulatory regime requires not just, I think, clear thinking, but effective uh, application as well. Okay, thank you, Andy Mark, tech analyst and senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. This is World Today. We'll be back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. China's central bank has kept benchmark lending rates unchanged at a monthly fixing. The one-year loan prime rate, or LPR, was kept at 3.45%, while the five-year LPR was unchanged at 4.2%. Most new and outstanding loans in China are based on the one-year LPR, with the five-year rate influences the pricing of mortgages. Meanwhile, the Chinese currency has gained significantly against the U.S. dollar recently. For more, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. So, Dr. Zhou, the latest LPR announced by the China Central Bank remains unchanged from last month. So what effect is this going to have on the lending rates, do you think? Yeah, I, I think that uh, when we're looking at the indicator of LPR, it's a very important indicator that the central bank is trying to give some signals to the market. So I, I think that from this change, they, they still believe, the central bank still believe that the market is stable and the supply and demand side of the capital are meet with each other in a proper way. So they will not change it right now. Mm. And how will the investment and consumption be affected? As we know, multiple banks have already lowered their deposits rates in China, right? Yeah, when we're talking about that, I would say that when we're talking about the consumption and investment, mm. both of these two sides are really want to have some more predictability. So they are saying that the interest rate as a cost of the investment or a cost of borrowing money from the banks could affect their decisions. So when they believe that the these two things, I mean, for the cost of that, doing that is still stable, they may make better investment and consume more in the short future. Mm, so how will the financial institutions react to the possibility of increased borrowing needs, do you think? 
Yeah, I, I think that uh, these banks are really guided by the central bank that they should provide more sources of the financial, you know, the, the loans or different kind of uh, supply to the market. Well, if we are looking at uh, the real economy, they are reacting uh, very quickly to rebound from the pandemic. So in this regard, they may need more money to not only for some of the turnover need, but also to expand their investment for more factories and or some of the infrastructure or increase their inventories. And we are seeing the October credit and total social financing data exceeded the market expectations. So what does it tell us? So it tells us that the market is really receiving the signal from the central banks. So some of the banks are really putting some strength to increase their supply of the money. Well, the enterprises they also believe that they can do a better profits in the coming future. So they want to have more loans to expand their investment and some of their factories. Mm. And the Chinese yuan was steady these days and set up a bigger gain against the U.S. dollar. So, Dr. Zhou, what are some of the main factors of it? And what does it mean for the Chinese economic recovery for the rest of the year? Actually, when talking about the exchange rate, they are the similar like all other products. If we are looking at the prices, if there are more demand, uh, they will increase the prices. So I think that uh, the signal tells us that when we have some uh, similarly to be successful meetings by the two leaders of both sides of China and United States in San Francisco, the market is believing that there will be more confidence by both sides. So they believe that uh, they will have more you know, uh, promises or they will think that Chinese economies will get much better. So they are looking a very good signal from China's uh, development and they believe that RMB should also be, uh, I mean, appreciated according to this uh, change. Well, it is also some of the results from the, the decision of the Federal Reserve of United States and they are uh, trying to put some stable on its uh, interest rates, not that hawkish. So by both sides, I, I would see that has some uh, some impacts on the exchange rate between RMB and US dollars. Mm. So a lot of financial institutions like HSBC, Morgan Stanley, they raised the forecast for China's economy. And HSBC now see this year's China's GDP growth forecast at 5.2%. So why are they turning to be more optimistic about China's economy now? Yeah, I think that the decision or prediction by these uh, commercial banks is trying to grasp the you know the ideas or nature of the economy. They really see some very good signals from China's economy, like from the real GDP, from the industrial output, and also for the employment. So they made some uh, some kind of a good change for improve the prediction of China's uh, the economies, and that is reflecting their decisions and their belief of China. Well, if you are looking at some of the other factors, I would see not only uh, for this uh, company itself, but also from some international organizations like IMF and World Bank, they really have some uh, good feeling about what China is going to do in the rest of this year. So it's a very nice uh, macro environment, and that is also the reasons why some of the consulting companies is trying 
to change its uh, prediction and make a better prediction on China's uh, real economy's growth. Mm. And the government sets the priority to have high quality growth, which is driven by the digital economy, the green transition, etc., etc. So could you elaborate more on that? Actually, I'm traveling around China in different provinces. I noticed that many of the companies are really trying to grasp the opportunities because they really saw uh, the potentials of the development. So I, I would believe that uh, you know the manufacturing in those areas are real strong, and also uh, some of the innovative ways of doing the business digitally has expanded quite a lot. So both sides of the government and the, the market is uh, trying to make its uh, new balance to develop those areas and this change will impact the the overall structure of the economy allowed to improve the efficiency and reducing the cost of sharing the information with others while still improve the abilities for the for the factories to meet the the demand of the customers even abroad so mm-hmm. I, I think it's a really nice opportunity for us to think about how can we reach a high quality development in the coming years by better strengthen our and also improve the relationship with other countries and our partners. Mm, And what is green transition's role in China's economy now? Yeah, green transition is uh, one of the main areas for the higher quality development because, you know, China is a very good manufacturing countries and we produce so many things in the traditional way. Some of them are we learning from other countries' practices, but now we see that uh, the energy is transforming and some of the new energies have been employed in the manufacturing. So we can create a much wider room. Well, in this regard, we are not only trying to support ourselves, but also support many other countries' development plans to reach the the carbon neutralization in the coming years. So it's a wide of possibilities, not only from the manufacturing, and you can still find more from the services abilities, which is a, a, a very important integration in the development or transition to the green economy. Mm, and China has huge market demand. So how do you think China's market can contribute to the global economic recovery? Yeah, Chinese market is growing very quickly and we are almost the number two in the consumption, I mean the total volume in the world. So we are still catching up with uh, the number one. So I, I think that uh, Chinese consumers are really very uh, interested in trying some different uh, products produced by other countries. If you are looking at the CIIE, the China International Import Expo in Shanghai, there are so many exhibitors who are giving us uh, a kind of a new products and Services. So I mean that uh, our market can provide so many possibilities instead of just the volume. So there are so many things that we can do to contribute to the recovery of the world economy. That's Joe Mi, Senior Research Fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation, speaking with Zhao Yang. This is World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Air China has resumed flights between Beijing and Washington. Direct passenger services between the two national capitals are now available for the first time after the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeoyang has more from the Beijing Capital International Airport. 
The flight number CA817 operates twice a week, with a return leg CA818 making a stop over in Los Angeles. Well, since the easing of the COVID-19 pandemic, the resumption of flights between China and the United States has been closely monitored. According to the Civil Aviation Administration of China, during the 2023-2024 winter and spring flight season, the number of regular passenger flights between China and the United States expects to increase from the 48 per week to 70, providing greater convenience for personnel and economic and trade exchanges between the two sides. And earlier we had talked to some of the international passengers on how they feel about the resumption. I think the direct flight is very convenient. Before, it took me around 20 hours to travel from Beijing to Washington, D.C., and I need to make a stopover at other cities. Now, with the direct flight, it takes me only 13 to 14 hours to travel to Washington, D.C. If we have a direct flight now to Germany, it's very, let's say, close to Poland. Maybe you still don't have uh, direct flights to Poland, yeah, but uh, I believe uh, to Germany is still very convenient for us uh, to travel like this, yeah. This is the accord with Chinese President Xi Jinping's words when he meeting with the U.S. President Joe Biden during the APEC summit and he said he increased the two sides to increase people-to-people exchanges and also that's increased increasing tourism and adding dialogue, especially in the, uh, in the increasing the flight sector. And also, as we mentioned, that will increase the frequent exchanges between the two sides. We have also seen that Air China will increase a flight from Beijing to San, to San Francisco, well, starting from November 30. And Another airline from China, Hainan Airlines, is going to resume from Beijing to Boston starting from November 26. At the same time, China Southern Airlines and China Eastern Airlines will also starting to resume uh, flights between China and the United States. That's Yang reporting. And for more, we are now joined on the line by Anna Tangian, a senior fellow with Taihe Institute. Anna, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So with Air China resuming flights between Beijing and Washington, how do you see those developments influencing the people-to-people exchanges between the two countries? Well, I think it's very good, but uh, this has been uh, in the works uh, before the current summit uh, back in August uh, 21st. Uh, they announced that they were going to have the twice-weekly flights uh, starting in October, beginning of November, and that is, in fact, what has happened. Um and this goes to show that uh, you know the Chinese government has you know very very carefully planned out a scenario where they uh, really do want to draw people together, especially at the pandemic. Um, you know it's basically gone from 12 flights to 18, and it could go to 24 flights a week, going back and forth directly between the U.S. and China, and it's much needed. Yeah, and what do you make of the timing of this move, and and how does that reflect the overall picture of China-U.S. relations? Well, I mean, the, the timing is is good. I mean, coming on the heels of the of the summit between Biden and Xi, uh, it it demonstrates action. Uh, too often on, on the U.S. side, there can be a lot of uh, words, but not necessarily good follow up. Uh, but China has been a very very determined. There's absolutely certain they want to make this happen, and they are doing what is necessary. Uh, it's going to be a great relief um, to people in the diplomatic services, as, as well as um, you know, other business people who are in that area who want to get back and forth uh, to Beijing. It's a long flight, uh, just as is, but it's much longer if you have to uh, uh, change planes, things like that. Okay, so how do you see these uh, developments uh, influence bilateral cooperation, uh, not only in economy and trade, but also in uh, academic fields or other fields? Well, it's really important. I mean, Washington is the 
center of America's think tanks. Uh, you have you know quite a few on the West Coast, but if you starting at adding them up, I mean, um, you know, uh, three quarters of them seem like of the of the major ones seem based in Washington or have Washington offices. Uh, there has been um, very very little communication between uh, intellectuals, uh, and you you see it. I mean, you hear and read articles which you know complete are completely divorced from reality. Uh, and these are people who used to travel quite often to um, China. I myself, I'm a, a member of a think tank, Tai He, and we've um, uh, you know, literally hosted uh, dozens of different people from think tanks. And they're, they're always say, oh, we're surprised. We thought things would be different. Uh, what we're hearing doesn't necessarily agree with what we actually see. And uh, I think that's really, really important because the uh, the press has been playing up that there are these massive differences, and it's kind of like um, you know that these are two cultures that can't get along. And it's quite quite the opposite. When people get here, they understand that this is a very welcoming, very safe place where they can, in fact, discuss everything, anything that they want. Yes, and and during the APEC summit last week in San Francisco, President Xi Jinping said China is ready to be a partner and friend of the United States.、Uh, but the question is, do you think the U.S. is is also prepared to view China as a potential partner rather than a foe or a rival? Well, you know, it kind of depends.、Uh, um, if if you're really if you're talking to Washington elite,、uh, it can be very、uh, difficult.、Um, I, and I think, to, to a certain extent,、uh, Beijing has not given up, but just said, "Look, we're not going to convince people who are wedded to an ideology that is hostile to the very、uh, success of China." On the other hand,、uh, talking to the business uh, corporations, etc., you know, as you saw,、uh, three standing ovations for what she was telling them,、um, and you know, the. Opening up these flights is a clear indication that it's not just words he's talking about. That in fact,、uh, he's going to follow through on that. And also, you know, there's this idea of people-to-people exchanges,、uh, very, very important. If the American people are going to、uh, get away from this idea that China is the enemy, they need to meet、uh, Chinese people, and Chinese people need to meet Americans.、Um, it really is about forming these friendships to get over these kind of stereotypes that are being spread. Okay, and and very briefly, how do you view this、um, sustainability of this current positive traje- trajectory in in bilateral ties? Well, I mean, China is going to sustain it.、Um, hopefully, it's、uh, there are responses to it. I mean, at some point, the the electorate in the United States is going to start questioning why there's all this money being spent on bullets, bombs, and killing people.、Uh, wouldn't it be better just to kind of get along with folks and?、Uh, If they decide that they want different leaders in Washington,、uh, ones that are, are more practical, more interested in a better relation, that would be probably good for everybody. Thank you, Honor Tangian, senior fellow with Taihe Institute. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. And for more discussion, you can follow us on X at CGTN Radio. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.